Well, hello and uh, welcome again to Covenant Presbyterian Church and a special welcome to those of you who are uh, a part of our service via the live stream. Thank you uh, again for your patience. Uh, sorry that you can't be here right now, uh, but you are indeed loved and we thank you for uh, you being a part of Covenant Presbyterian Church. I'd like for everyone to open their Bibles, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Even, if I, even as I say that, I think, well, everyone has the passage in front of them in the worship bulletin. I guess you don't need to open your Bibles. But Ephesians 5 is where we'll be spending our time, verses 25 through 27. And little theologians, I'm happy that you're here with us this morning. Thank you. If you could do a favor for me in your own worship bulletin, if you wouldn't mind drawing for me a picture of anything that is beautiful. Anything that is beautiful. Have you heard that word before? As you'll hear me later in the sermon, I'll admit, we don't actually use that word very often. Try as best you can to draw me anything that is beautiful. Well, our passages from Ephesians 5, we're looking uh, this morning at a passage that tells us a thing or two about the beauty of the church. Uh, in this series, Life in the Body, we are looking at pictures in the Bible that show us what the church is like. And next week, we'll be looking at uh, safety in the church, what it's like to be a part of a body that is secure. And then after that, we'll, we'll look at leadership. What does leadership look like in the life of the body? But this morning, beauty from Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Would you please join me in prayer before we read this passage? Please pray with me. Our Holy Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Every Sunday that we gather together, we thank you for speaking to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would not take your word lightly, and we pray that as we understand your word and come to know you more through your word, that we would be uh, grateful because it is you revealing yourself to us making yourself known by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, again, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the word of our Lord. Well, as we're looking at these uh, various pictures of life in the body, uh, this is a picture uh, of beauty, and I have to explain where in this passage I see beauty. But let me begin by letting you know what you would already assume, and that is that I have officiated many weddings it's uh, one of the delights and privileges of being a minister of the gospel. So know that when I say this. The groom at a wedding is almost always useless. I'm very sincere about that. The groom is almost always useless. And in fact, oftentimes, they pride themselves in their ability to be useless. Uh, they come and they uh, laugh and joke and they're uh, listening for instructions. They want to be told what to do, but uh, to be sure, the groom is almost always useless. And in fact, I'm sure I was uh, useless at my own wedding. 
But Jesus is a groom who's not useless at all. In fact, everything in this passage tells us about the activity of this groom. He loves the bride, he says in verse 25, and he gives himself up for her. And he does so in order to sanctify her, to actually make her holy, to make her separate. He cleanses her with a washing of water, I think perhaps not a reference to baptism, but to a a bridal bath, to an anointing with perfume that would happen prior to marriage. He He does that. He cleanses her with the word. He presents his bride to himself in splendor, verse 27. In fact, the NIV uses not the word splendor, but radiance. He presents his bride to himself in radiance. And then Paul goes on, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. This is all done by the groom who is not useless. And while it may sound as though that uh, this list is a slow process from the finding of the bride to showing his uh, love for her by dying for her upon the cross and then making her more and more beautiful over time, and then presenting himself or herself uh, to him on the wedding day. It may, it may sound like this is a very slow process, but I don't think, I don't think that it is. I think that uh, really what's happening here is the proper way to understand what Paul is doing is to understand that Paul here is describing an instantaneous event, but he's actually focusing in on it in such a way that it really functions a bit like uh, a high-action moment that's captured on camera and then is shown in slow motion. It seems to be that's what Paul is doing here, something that's rather instantaneous. It's a picture of the, of the atonement. Uh, the best commentators say that that's exactly what this is a picture of, the atonement that Jesus offers upon his cross. But what Paul does here is he seems to stretch that out ingredient by ingredient by ingredient that we might see this great and glorious sacrificial work of the cross and how it is that that work on the cross uh, sanctifies and uh, cleanses and makes beautiful without spot or wrinkle the very bride of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning as a Christian, this, these few verses, this picture here that has been shown ingredient by ingredient, uh, this actually is a picture of how Jesus sees you right now. You see, you're helpless to make yourself beautiful, to make yourself worthy of such a groom. But he does all of that. And, and, if you, and if you've put your trust in Jesus, uh, he is all of these things to you right now. In God's sight, by the power of the atoning work of Christ, you are right now, Christian, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Because in God's sight, by the power of the atoning work of Christ, you are holy and without blemish. And that reality ought to be before your eyes. Because you see, the gospel actually makes the church body beautiful in God's sight. This is what the gospel does. It makes the church body, the bride of Jesus Christ, beautiful in God's sight. And having been made beautiful through the gospel, she has an opportunity, this bride does, to display that beauty to others. And that's really what I want us to talk about this morning Uh, The gospel makes the church body beautiful in God's sight, and she has an opportunity to display that beauty to others. And let's begin uh, with a part that may actually be uh, uh, causing the biggest obstacle to you. Is beauty an appropriate quality to notice in this passage? 
Is beauty an appropriate quality to notice in this passage? This is the first point. I think we need to begin here. You see, in this passage, Paul says in verse 27 that Jesus, he makes the church radiant or full of splendor. And in the Greek, this, uh, this splendor is a kind of glory or it's a kind of weightiness, a, a heaviness. Uh, however, Jesus uses this very word, splendor, to describe a clothing that is beautiful, uh, clothing that has the kind of uh, splendid uh, look about it that it's worn by people in a royal family. This is Luke chapter 7. Jesus uses this word to describe beautiful clothing. And he also uses this word to describe uh, freshly whitewashed uh, tombs. Now, uh, that's a bit of a gory image, perhaps a tomb, but Jesus says that the tomb can be whitewashed in such a way that it actually uh, has the appearance of beauty. And Jesus is using this very same word that's translated here, splendor. You see, beauty is actually a hard word for many of us today. And uh, if you don't mind me speaking with candor, I I find that this word is particularly difficult for many men to use. When's the last time you heard a man comment on something that is beautiful and calling it out, saying that is beautiful, that possesses beauty? It's just not a word or sentiment even that we use very often, and I'm here speaking uh, about men But what we need to know is that the word beauty and the very idea of beauty, something that is uh, beautiful in in appearance, that actually shows up in Scripture an awful lot. In fact, in preparation for this sermon, I looked at around 120 separate verses verses where uh, beauty or loveliness or attractiveness is considered. You know, and it's actually been a long time since I've looked at so many references in preparation for a sermon. But beauty is all over Scripture. And let me defend uh, the, uh, the Bible's language of beauty just for a moment. But clearly, there are numerous passages in the Bible that tell us that creation is beautiful. Uh, animals and uh, the sun and the moon, uh, God makes everything beautiful in its time in Ecclesiastes, but flowers and trees, and uh, there's actually a beautiful cow in Scripture. Creation is beautiful in Scripture, but people are beautiful in Scripture as well. Joseph was handsome in appearance. Did you think that I was going to start with a female who has beauty? They're in Scripture as well, but Joseph was handsome. There's actually quite a few references to the beauty of Moses. I wonder if uh, Moses would be uh, proud of that manly man known for being beautiful. David was beautiful. You know, Job's daughters, you perhaps don't recall this, Job's daughters were uh, some of the most uh, beautiful uh, girls of, her t- of their time. Sarah was beautiful well into her old age. There's just so many examples of, of people being called beautiful in Scripture. But there's more, not just creation and not just people, but man-made articles, according to the Bible, can actually be beautiful. Uh, Garments of the priest are beautiful. And there are other kinds of uh, clothing that the Bible calls beautiful. Uh, Houses are beautiful. Unfortunately, uh, idols could be beautiful. Set jewels are beautiful. Uh, Men, here's one for us, perhaps. Uh, Ships can be beautiful. So even man-made articles can be beautiful. And so my point is simply this, that we may actually be overly afraid to use the word beautiful or to find beauty 
and uh, as described in Scripture. Now, uh, very quickly, we know that beauty can often be put to wicked use, like a gold ring in a pig's snout. That's Proverbs 11. A beauty can be a sign of vanity. It can be used to entice others into wickedness. Uh, beauty uh, can, and in fact does, uh, fade. Uh, beauty can be used to justify our own pride. Beauty, beauty can be a thin veneer uh, covering something that is actually uh, ugly. Beauty can justify prostitution for some. Beautiful jewels can be worshipped as idols. And beauty can be but merely external. And I think what happens is we look at these negative instances of beauty and we write off the notion of beauty altogether when we look at Scripture and we use the word beauty to describe uh, God or to describe Jesus or to describe the church. And the word beauty actually becomes edited out of our vocabulary, but it's all over Scripture and, in fact, it's used more positively, far more positively in Scripture than it is negatively. Is beauty, then, an appropriate quality to notice as we look at Ephesians 5? And I think that it is. Beauty is an appropriate quality to notice because beauty is all over Scripture. But let's move on. That's just by way of, of introduction. Uh, let's talk about, then, uh, what it means for something to actually be beautiful. And I want to say this. This is the second point. God himself is the standard for all that is beautiful. As Christians, this is very important for us to believe because this is what Scripture teaches us. If you want to know what's uh, unpopular today, it's telling people what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. You know that phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, many of us hold that to be uh, gospel truth, but there's no way that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know, it comes from a 19th century uh, novel uh, written by an author who was known for writing sappy uh, romantic books. But she's quoted by James Joyce in Ulysses. And this, this very phrase, beauty uh, is in the eye of the beholder, is actually not true. But you tell people that and be prepared for a battle. If I think it's beautiful, it's beautiful. No, if it's ugly, it is not beautiful. Or perhaps I could say it this way and should say it this way. If it is wicked, it is not beautiful. If it is displeasing to God, it is not beautiful. Ah, you see, beauty can't be in the eye of the beholder. You see, the, the gospel, if the gospel makes the church body beautiful in God's sight, then we actually need to know what is beautiful to God. God himself is a standard for all that is beautiful. And, and Scripture tells us this in three ways. This might be shocking to some of you, but beauty is shown, shows up in Scripture uh, as a standard of God's in three ways. The first is that God is himself beautiful. Did you know that? God is himself beautiful. You know, we tend to think of creation as the great paradigm for beauty. Why do you think creation is beautiful? Because it's made by God. And he's beautiful. Psalm 96 says, that God, 96 says that God is beautiful in his sanctuary. He shines in the perfection of beauty. He lives in beauty, and so his, uh, his habitation is a holy and beautiful habitation. His greatness and his beauty are both unsurpassed, says the prophet Zechariah. 
Even his wisdom is described as beautiful. He's beautiful before creation is beautiful. Scripture tells us this. He must be the standard for all that is beautiful because he himself, the Holy Spirit tells us, is beautiful. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, is beautiful. Is that surprising to you? Psalm 27 says that we are to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The branch of the Lord, which is Jesus, is beautiful and glorious, says the prophet Isaiah. Jesus, also by Isaiah, is called a diadem of beauty. The king is beautiful, Isaiah 33, but also Psalm 45. He is the beautiful crown upon our heads, and he is the splendor of holiness. Jesus is himself beautiful. Well, perhaps it wasn't surprising to you that God is beautiful or that Jesus is beautiful. But the Bible also says this, the people of God are actually beautiful. It's not found just in this passage from Ephesians 5. God will beautify his house, so promises Isaiah, and he will beautify his people. Jerusalem is a beautiful city, which I think in Psalm 48 is a picture of the church, because Jerusalem is a beautiful city because she has been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. His body is a body of people who are beautiful like the shoots of an olive tree spread out, the prophet Hosea. The house of the Lord it should be a holy and beautiful house, cries Isaiah and Ezekiel. He gives us as his people beautiful headdresses. We are his crown of beauty as the church. All of his heritage should be beautiful. His people are a beautiful flock. God uh, puts a ring on her nose and earrings in her ears and a crown upon her head and causes her to grow in beauty. Now this, this really should be staggering to us. That beauty would be used so frequently in the Bible, but that, that, that beauty would be so focused in the Bible. You know, many pastors and theologians in church history have written about and preached upon the beauty of God, especially the beauty of God in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working together in love and in beauty. And again, in the history of the church, we have so many theologians and pastors who uh, write about the great beauty of the grace of God, that he would love those who are unlovable. And many people have become believers through the allurement of God's beauty and perfection, both in his character and who he is, and in the Son, and in the life of the church, but also in his great grace that trickles from the Father to the Son to the church's life. Many people have been allured to God through his beauty. We read of these conversions. I think C.S. Lewis may be someone uh, like this. There's a wonderful book uh, written by a man named Francis Spufford who uh, says that very same thing, that it was the beauty of the church that finally drew him to her. And Jonathan Edwards says this. He says that the grace of God is more worthy than all of the silver and gold and jewels in the world. Do we really believe that? And Edwards goes on and he says, if so, then a great degree of this silver and gold and jewels ought to be most desirable. To have a whole bunch 
of this silver and gold and jewels, it must be really desirable. We looked at a psalm that reminds us that God's grace is plentiful. And Jonathan Edwards says, if God's grace is plentiful, we ought to desire more and more and more of his grace. He that has much grace has much of the divine likeness, says Edwards. Uh, He uh, has much of God's beauty that has been imparted to him through this grace. He has much of the Holy Spirit dwelling in his heart. He has much of God and what can be a greater and nobler and more desirable thing. God's grace is beautiful. But if a God who is called beautiful appoints his only son who is also beautiful to make a special people beautiful for all to see, well then perhaps we need to appreciate the gospel using that slightly uncomfortable set of qualifications associated with beauty and loveliness and attractiveness. You see, the the gospel, according to Scripture, is a concentrated form of God's beauty. The very work of the gospel is a concentrated form of God's beauty. The gospel is itself a message of beauty. This is the third point, and I want to conclude here with just a couple of applications. You see, it's the gospel that makes the church body beautiful in God's sight. And having been made beautiful, she actually has this opportunity to show that same gospel beauty to others. And let me give you two biblical examples and draw two applications from them. The first is this. You know, the Bible tells us that the coming of the gospel is beautiful. It's not a philosophical statement. It's it's not a a hypothetical statement. It's not something that floats out there. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 10, describing uh, a minister who is called to preach the gospel and to go out into the world and and proclaim that message and that hearers of that gospel would actually become uh, believers, uh, that that all of that that's happening right there in front of the eyes of of the people in the church at Rome, you know, Paul says that's beautiful. He actually looks backwards to Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. You want to see the beauty of God. You want to see the beauty of Jesus. You want to see the beauty of the church. Well, may she be a church that is proclaiming the gospel of grace. May she be that kind of church. May she she not turn her nose up at people because she's turning her nose up at evangelism. The the great angelic joy in the heavenly spheres is the joy that comes from a sinner who hears the gospel and who repents, places their trust in Jesus Christ. To be made beautiful in the preaching of the gospel is uh, in the concentrated form, the very beauty of God and the very beauty of Jesus. We know this to be true. You, sitting here this morning, know this to be true. What in your mind, Christian, is more beautiful than that person who has been uh, hell-bent on destroying the image of Jesus Christ, running from him, refusing him, when that individual, man or woman, says yes to the gospel? Would you like to debate debate with me over what's more beautiful than that? Do we not pray that very reality for friends and family members who don't know Jesus, especially for those who seem to hate Jesus? And angels rejoice 
when someone says yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, the author of the gospel, is himself beautiful. Jesus, the worker of the gospel, is himself beautiful. And the proclaimers of the gospel, by that great grace, are made beautiful. It ought to be beautiful to you to see individuals come to faith. We should be excited to tell others about Jesus. You see, that's my first application. I rather lured you into it, didn't I? If the gospel is beautiful, are we telling others about Jesus? It's the first application. It's the Apostle Paul saying that the proclamation of the gospel and belief in the gospel in Romans 10 is beautiful. The second is this, a rather strange picture uh, just before Jesus died upon the cross. You'll recall that Jesus was in a home in Bethany. The story's in Matthew 26, and a woman enters this house, and she approaches Jesus, and she breaks a flask of ointment over his head. All of it is poured out on him. The value of that ointment was about a year's wages, and the disciples chided her. Do you know what Jesus said about that event? He called it beautiful. Did you know that? He said, this is a beautiful event. And you know what else he said about that event? He said that this event actually is a, is a picture of the proclamation of the gospel. How does that figure? A woman took a year's wages, and she poured it out upon Jesus, preparing him for his work upon the cross. Do you think it was a precious gift that she gave? Far less precious than the gift he was about to give. And so she pictured the gospel. Jesus himself says so in Matthew 26, 13. And Jesus himself says that this is a beautiful event. You see, the beauty of the church is actually supposed to be seen by others, uh, to be broadcasted out there. The way that we behave as a church body actually serves to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. Uh, Ezekiel uh, said, your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. Your beauty, church, is your renown among the nations. Uh, Jeremiah, almost in the middle of Lamentations, he says uh, that your beauty was supposed to be seen by all of those who would pass along the way. They would pass before you. They would walk through the parking lot of Covenant Presbyterian Church. And what are they supposed to see? The perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth. They're supposed to see that. And the church body has an opportunity then to be beautiful. And if we look at this passage, we see ways in which that can be done. Husbands can act in such a way that shows the beauty of the gospel. Wives can act a certain way that shows the beauty of the gospel. Uh, employers, employees, parents, children. And we think that this is merely a matter of ethics, being good people. But this actually is what makes the church beautiful. And that beauty is to be seen by those who pass by. And what this does then is it gives us a better sense of what it means to be a holy people and to value holiness in our personal lives in such a way that we love those things that are pleasing to God and we hate those things that are displeasing to him because all beauty, all beauty is actually uh, cast next to the beauty of God to find out whether it's truly beautiful or not. This is my second application. We need to stop taking light of personal holiness 
As Christians, we are to live a certain way that others, as they pass by, they notice, and they may be offended, to be sure, but God, he's the standard bearer for beauty, and he is making us beautiful. Well, the gospel makes the church body beautiful in God's sight, to be sure, and she, by God's grace, has an opportunity to display the beauty of her life to others, that they, too, may become followers of Jesus Christ and also made beautiful. Well, this is God's word for us in Ephesians 5 as we're looking at pictures uh, of the uh, life of the church. Would you uh, join me in prayer? Our Holy Father, thank you for making us beautiful through the cross of Jesus. Would you strengthen and encourage us to go out into the world and to tell others about the great beauty of the gospel? We are undeserving and yet we have been treated with royalty. And Father, would you also help us to live lives that are pleasing before you, not simply because we uh, are little legalists, but because the gospel does this to us. And this is how we radiate with the beauty of our Lord and Savior. Do these two things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.